Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast with me, Jez Nelson. And yes, you are listening to the Penguin Podcast. This one is just a slightly different flavour to the others. Richard E. Grant will be back soon, but for the next couple of episodes, I thought I'd take the opportunity to shine the spotlight on some of the highlights from the past year. I'll be your Penguin Podcast tour guide, if you will. From Shakespeare to surrogacy... From libraries to labiaplasty, the Penguin podcast has covered a dizzying array of topics. And we've also broken free from the Penguin studio and hit the road with a certain chap by the name of Bill Bryson. Excuse me. Very well trained and behaved. Richard, excuse me. Is this live? It is live, yeah. I didn't know that. Does this mean I can't say f***? In front of these... Yes, anything you want. Thank you for joining me, and hello, everybody. Hello, children. Bill Bryson. That was Bill Bryson in a special live edition of the Penguin podcast at the Cambridge Corn Exchange, and there's certainly been a lot of laughter over the past year. The producer set up a meeting and came to my house, and I met her, and I was probably the most excited I'd ever been in my entire existence. <laughs> and I struggled to sit still, yeah. and I tried to convince her that I was her character. And um, she was very amused, particularly because at that time I didn't have a TV, because we wow. grew up with no TV in our house, because I think my parents were like, you're brain damaged enough, we don't want more <laughs> shit in your head. So I remember the producer saying to me, what do you think of growing children, Jessica? And I said, I haven't got a TV. And she laughed. So I was actually on TV before I had one. Uh, and two weeks later, I had an audition, and then I had another one. And then I received a letter on New Year's Day telling wow. me that I'd been picked and I got this bar. And I went to school, as you can imagine, a little bit smug. <laughs> and I walked in and the girls were like, so what happened with the audition? I just said, oh, yeah, I got it. I start in April. They were like, it's against the ancient laws of the universe. <laughs> this cannot happen. So the grandchild was unbelievable. It got me out of school nine months a year legally. So I'm very happy but stupid. The fabulous comedian Francesca Martinez telling Richard about the moment she joined the cast of Grange Hill. But there's been an awful lot more than laughs and banter. When the naturalist Chris Packham spoke about his stunning memoir, Fingers in the Sparkle Jar, he talked about some times in his past that up until then he'd kept deeply private. We've talked about your troubles as a child, but Fingers in the Sparkle Jar is also unsparing in its detail of your troubles as an adult too. In fact, you were suicidal at one point, weren't you? A couple of times. A couple of times. Um... And what saved you? The first time, I think, was a lack of sincerity and the degree of, you know, the suicidal urges. It was more about other people and less about me. On the second occasion, in the early 2000s, it wasn't about other people. And on that occasion, I, I was far more serious about it. And, and I think that one of the things that led to my comfort with the idea was we've already touched upon, and that was the good parts of my life, not the bad. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt that I'd had a very complete life. I couldn't have, at that point in time, have said that I didn't, I hadn't had a, a rich and rewarding life. 
And in a way, that sort of strengthened my, my position, my argument, if you like. As it was, the first time I didn't have enough pills, and on the second occasion when I was seriously thinking about it, I had my, my dogs there. I mean, I love the dogs as much as I love that bird, and they, in their way, they loved me back, and I couldn't leave them on their own. I was in a place where they, I couldn't leave them on their own, so that was it, really. Chris Packham in discussion with Richard E. Grant about his memoir, Fingers in the Sparkle Jar. Chris's interview was searingly honest, certainly dark in some places, but overall it was actually incredibly life-affirming. You know, I'm the sort of person that counts rainbows. You know, I, I do try to get up every day and think today could be the last. You know, you mustn't waste a moonrise. You've got to seize all of these things. If you're lazy, then light, you're wasting the most extraordinary thing. One planet we know of in the entire universe with life on it, and you've got a short tenure. You've got to be a sponge. You've got to have everything. You know, you've got to suck every single last bit of that up. Let's hear from Francesca Martinez again, who couldn't agree more with that sentiment. The key thing for me is I want people to read the book and to liberate themselves from this disempowering culture of I'm not good enough and realise I am good enough and I got to exist on this bit of rock in space and it's bloody amazing. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear one last extract from the audiobook as read by you. Encountering difference is an opportunity to learn, to grow, to reach out, to connect a chance to expand as a human being and challenge afresh your ideas, beliefs, assumptions, insecurities and prejudices. Regardless of the body you're born into, regardless of skin colour or gender or choice of partner or country of birth or working status or income or ability or belief, we all share the same universal human experience. We're all born and we will all die. In between, we live, love, laugh and cry. Everyone's different and that's what makes us all the same. So don't let anyone make you feel abnormal because it doesn't exist. And who wants to be fucking normal anyway? <laughs> Francesca Martinez reading from her inspirational autobiography, What the Four Stars is Normal. That's the polite version of the title, by the way. You're listening to the first of a pair of special highlights editions of the Penguin podcast. Now, you've probably all heard the phrase, we all have a book inside us. Well, it's been interesting to hear from some of our authors about their roots into writing. For some, they knew from a young age exactly where they were heading, even if their first steps were a little faltering. I wrote nature notes, which were very dull. You know, daffodils came out today, that yeah. kind of thing. But then I, I wrote a real bodice ripper. At the age of? Oh, 11... 11, round, round about 11. Have you still got it? No, I threw it away. Because okay. when I reached the sophisticated age at 30, of yes, 13, of I thought it was childish. Of course, was, it was. Now, of course, I could bring it out now and make a fortune, because actually it was hilarious. But <laughs> There was a scene in the shower yes. when somebody's towel came off. I showed it to my then best friend, who looked horrified and said, I didn't think you were like that. <laughs> 
Pat Barker during her discussion about her latest novel, Noonday. For Man Booker Prize winner Howard Jacobson, however, it took until his 40s before he felt he had the confidence to really call himself an author. I knew I wanted to write novels, but I revered novelists so much that I thought I could never do that. I remember lying in in my little bed and looking at the few novels that I had and looking at their names and saying, you know, Jane Austen, George Eliot, Charlotte Bronte, T.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad. I thought, Howard Jacobson sounds wrong. No, it will never happen. Howard Jacobson, no, it just sounds wrong. It's not to be. This was before I'd done any, any of the work. The reason it wasn't to be for so long was, you know, I didn't work hard enough and I didn't think hard enough about what I might do and get rid of some of the grandiose ideas of writing Anna Karenina immediately. So it was nothing to do with being called Howard Jacobson, though I'm still surprised that anybody wants to buy a book by Howard Jacobson, and maybe they don't. Well, if it took Howard Jacobson until his 40s to actually write a novel, he movingly described a key moment for him as a young child that did show his early talent for writing. I was eight years old at Temple Primary School in Cheatham Hill in Manchester and we were set, we were set a project which was to write an article about newspapers. So I wrote an article about newspapers. And when you were eight years old? Yeah, and then the bell went for break and I put my hand up and said, Miss, Miss, can I stay in at break and finish writing? And all the other kids went, oh, yes, what, what, what? So I did and wrote apparently what was a good piece about, about newspapers. And she wrote a, a thing to my mother, which I can still see because my mother has it in a little frame, faded blue notepaper, nice handwriting. Hey, all Howard is wonderfully precocious. I've never read a piece of writing like this from someone his age. I'm sure he will go on to be a great writer. And my mother framed it, and that was a little. And it would be on 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 the television. <laughs> and did Mrs. Herman did Mrs. Herman live to see you become well, the writer that you the are? Here's the saddest thing. Three months after my first novel came out, a letter came from Mrs. Herman's sister saying, I'm so sad that my sister, who died a couple of years ago, did not live to see this, because she often talked about how... I mean, this is years, this is 32 years later. She often talked about Howard and said, you know, I'm still sure it will happen, I'm st- and I'm sure she, she would have loved it. I cried. I shed a little tear when I, when I saw that. Because these teachers, you know, you've no idea what good you can do, what a seed you can plant... But without doubt, that played a part in my sense that I could do it because somebody believed I could do it and somebody important in that she was a teacher, so she yeah. knew, so she read what other people do. So it's not somebody in your own family because I, you know, I think anybody who's had some success in their life can account for one teacher who just said, I believe in you yep. and that you hang on to yep. that. Yep, it's, it makes a huge, huge, huge difference in there. They should be numbered among the saints. Well, Mrs Herman is numbered among my saints. Howard Jacobson talking about the all-important seeds that inspirational teachers can sow. For Neil Gaiman, discussing his fantasy novel Good Omens, which he co-wrote with the late Terry Pratchett, there's another equally important source of inspiration for young minds. I get sad when people say, well, why would you possibly need a library? Look, you can have all of this stuff on an iPad. And on the one hand, hypothetically, yes, you can have a lot of things on an iPad, Mm -hmm. but an iPad is not a safe space. An iPad doesn't give you the magic of a shelf to walk down and to take down something that you don't know what it is, to pick up something because the cover looks interesting. It doesn't give you serendipity. It doesn't give you quiet. As far as I'm concerned, libraries help create future generations. They give us literate adults. They give us people who can have the empathy that fiction can give. 
And when I watch local authorities all over the world, but right now particularly in England Mm -hmm. and in America, cutting their libraries, selling off their libraries, deciding it's an expense they do not need, for me it feels like somebody is like eating your seed corn. It's just stupid. It is so short-sighted. Neil Gaiman talking about the power of books. He was also equally enthusiastic about audiobooks. I love them. Normally, it's listening to books that I already love. Um, so I just listened to The Third Policeman as an audiobook. It was fantastic. And I'm now uh, wandering my way through the Pickwick Papers as an audiobook and absolutely just delighting in it and letting it wash over me. And it makes every drive anywhere better. For Pat Barker, it's just a luxury to be read to. Oh, I absolutely love it. Any way of getting the work to uh, slightly different kinds of readers. And also, you, know, we, you have to be practical. We are all very time poor these days. Mm-hmm. I love the idea that somebody can read a novel or have a novel read to them while they're walking the dog or decorating the living room, something like that. Because if you, if you don't make that possible for people, there's a danger that reading will get squeezed out of their lives altogether. And it takes you back to the childhood thing of a parent reading or yes. somebody reading to you, which is one of the most... It's the it's most for... relaxing thing imaginable. Yes. Yes, it, it, it really is. It's pure luxury. And for Paula Hawkins, talking about her smash hit, The Girl on the Train, she enjoyed hearing multiple voices reading her book. People absolutely love the audiobook. The feedback that I've had from people on Twitter, and they mm-hmm. just think that those, those three voices work fantastically. Um, I've had really brilliant um, feedback about that. So, so much better than having one narrator that takes you throughout imitating well, I th- those, I th- the voices. I think voices. It's really, it really helps sort of get the characters formed in people's minds if you have these different voices. It also immediately situates the reader, OK, this is where we are now, if mm-hmm. you, you're switching from one voice to another. Exactly. Yeah. It's also been revealing to hear from various authors who've voiced their own audiobooks. And for Mira Sayal, it gave her the chance to fully realise all the characters. I think that's one of the pleasures, actually, because I had all those voices in my head when I was writing the book. I mean, as an actor, of course, you have all those voices and you imagine playing each character as you're writing them and you want to give them great dialogue. So it was actually quite a pleasure to be able to to give rein to that when I was doing the audiobook. Emma Kennedy was another author who read her own book, The Tent, The Bucket and Me, is a book about calamitous family camping holidays that in places seems so far-fetched you wonder whether it's actually fiction. The hilarious and slightly scary part is that it's not. It all happened, including this. I'd never weed in a bucket before in my life, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I was quite determined that I was going to do this on my own. And uh, so the family all trooped off. I looked at the bucket and I thought, well, this is just going to be the same as a toilet. So I sat on it. And uh, I didn't realise that, the, that, that, the, that, the, that the, the circumference of the bucket was greater uh, than, than, than my little bum. And my knee sort of concertinaed up into my chest and I sunk very slowly down towards two generations of my family's bodily byproducts. And my mother sort of turned around and saw what was happening Mm -hmm. as I was being sucked downwards into this bucket. But I thought, well, no, I can get myself out of this. And I wriggled. And, of course, the bucket was not on even ground. And we tipped over and I was absolutely covered in urine, absolutely covered in it. Everything was a catastrophe as far as my mother was concerned. But they stripped me down 
and they made me go out into the, the slashing rain and I had to run round the car once naked <laughs> and, then, and then come back in. And my dad took me up in a towel and, and at which point my, my grandmother said, well, it could have been worse, I could have had a shit. <laughs> Why was your grandmother on a camping holiday with well, you? Whose idea was that? Well, exactly. My my dad, for reasons I will never understand, decided that to cheer up his, his recently bereaved mother, who had diabetes and a heart condition, that he was going to take her camping to the Gower <laughs> Peninsula. Well, seeing as things have got a little surreal, let's head back to the Cambridge Corn Exchange for the live edition of the Penguin Podcast with Bill Bryson. One of his objects, about which more in a moment, was a cow. And in the spirit of adventure, the production team duly set out to see if they could find one for the show. They got close, but not quite close enough. Your next object is a cow. I will hand this one to you. Thank you. It is closer to you. Thank you. Now, I have to read something from this uh, machine... Uh, about the cow because the publishers at Penguin tried to... They thought that it would be a very good idea to entertain Cambridge more than Bill himself to have a live cow come onto the stage. (laughs) So they very intrepidly went about asking around companies that might provide and facilitate a cow to come in for an evening like this. So I'm going to read you what the email was, which says, Many thanks for the thumbnail of the idea. We could provide a suitably calm cow for this event, as we have for many other events over the years. I think this is so quintessentially British as well, which is why I love it. However, in this instance, says she, I have reservations, which I think I should take the time to share so that you ultimately make an informed decision. (laughs) For health and safety... Let's assume the stage floor is covered with a non-slip rubber matting throughout. It obviously is. On cue, the cow is led out by her handler, and on cue, shrieks of hilarity ensue from the jam-packed audience in the hall. The cow, although calm in nature, will doubtless shat herself on the stage. (laughs) She didn't say that. She said defecate. That was me. I'm sorry. In reaction to the hall's pandemonium, and so it spirals, a few things here, she says. One... The cow perhaps unintentionally ends up the butt of the joke, which is regrettable. (laughs) Two, part of the audience will think it's a great laugh, although in 2015, perhaps fewer than you imagine. (laughs) Three, the other part of the audience will find it unacceptable, exploitative, and wholly inappropriate in terms of animal welfare. Quite right. And there lies the rub. A great idea that perhaps on closer examination may shoot Bill, Penguin and Richard E. Grant and your good selves in the leg. I wish I could be more positive, but unfortunately I'm unable to quote on this activity in view of the foregoing. However, I wish you every success for the podcast and in finding a suitable solution. Kind regards. A cow, one of a number of Bill Bryson's objects that he brought along that played an important part in his book, The Road to Little Dribbling. All of the Penguin podcast authors bring with them a selection of objects that inspired and shaped the writing of their books, and if a cow proved difficult to locate, some others have been a little easier, if no less arresting. For Louis de Bernier, it was a precious family heirloom that was an integral part of his novel, The Dust That Falls From Dreams. So here's what Howell said. Moved off at night to Lindenhow, where we stepped in a bar near the German lines. 
I was on guard, and it was really beautiful to see the trees, etc., silhouetted against the sky by star shells. Here I am, writing at about 9.45 a.m. We expect to be shelled. Last night I think I got some good photos of star shells. We are just after a sniper now, and soon I shall have a shot myself. 11.30. Poor Lampard has been shot through the head as he was observing a rifle grenade fall. Poor... Louis de Bernier reading from a diary written during World War I that belonged to his grandmother's fiancé. He ended up being killed himself, but, as Louis de Bernier wrote in the moving dedication to The Dust That Falls From Dreams, his spirit lives on. In memory of my grandmother's first fiancé, Private Howell Ashbridge Godby, HAC. Died of wounds received at Kemmel the 19th of February 1915. If not for his death, I would have had no life. Pat Barker also brought another wartime object with her, this time from the Second World War. This is the container for a child's gas mask. And on here, there's London County Council, school number 394. And the, the children, of course, who were evacuated in 1939 would all take their gas masks with them, suspended from their shoulders on a longer piece of string. And you can see from the size of the box that it contains a child-sized gas mask. My two male characters, uh, Paul Tarrant and Kit Neville, having fought in the First World War and having experienced constant gas drills and having experienced gas attacks... I thought how horrifying it would be for such a man to see a child in a gas mask. In a sense, what a sense of failure they would have, that they'd given everything in the First World War, and yet here they were again. Only this time it was back home, and children were having to go through it. There are even uh, toddlers' gas masks. There are gas cots for babies. And you think of the, I mean, the gas was not used, as we know, mm -hmm. but for parents in 1939, the prospect of getting their two-year-old into a gas mask would be very real and it would be terrifying. Yeah. Of course, not all of the objects brought into the Penguin studio have been quite so intense. Although this one, courtesy of Bridget Christie, has an intensity of an altogether different kind. Bridget, how does this relate to your first object? which I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, that you're going to, ex you're going to expose well, you to me. you can't actually see it, because well, it's what, in a your, jar. What, what, so your first object is a jar? Well, it's a fart, but it's in a jar, so you can't actually see it. But I wouldn't open the lid. Richard didn't open the lid, by the way, but he did get up close and personal with another of Bridget's objects. It's a really disgusting-looking piece of gammon. Why do you think it looks disgusting? Because look at it. Right, it looks okay. repulsive. Pink and squishy. Can't really smell it. A gammon steak is not a good-looking thing. OK. Let's hear a passage from a book for her that gives us a bit more background to this. Here in the West, we are choosing to have our genitals altered by cosmetic surgeons because the mainstreaming of porn has given men and women an unrealistic idea of what a vagina looks like. Ladies, please, leave your vaginas alone. They are all magnificent. They're not all meant to look the same. They're all supposed to look different. Every single vagina in the world is completely unique and magical. Vaginas are like snowflakes made of gammon. So, there you have it. But let's give Morph the last word for this episode. I had the very good fortune of meeting the Ardman animation guys, David Sprox and Peter Lord. In Bristol. And, yes, in Bristol and Nick Parks. 
and we were um, doing something together at the Bristol Silent Film Festival, and I'm a big fan of Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, and the Slapstick, the Slapstick Festival, I should call it. And I met them, and I was so entranced by the fact that I was, oh, my gosh, if someone had told me that I would one day meet these guys, I was beside myself. And I told them, look, you know, when I was a kid, I wrote to Morph, and he never wrote back. And this is why they're so brilliant at what they create, because it mattered to them that this 10-year-old kid in the 80s didn't get a letter back. And David was saying to, to his wife, she didn't morph... He, he should have written back. They normally write back with utmost seriousness. Aww. And then I got back to London and a few days later, Morph himself had signed um, Hi Shappy with love from Morph and a little cartoon of Morph and it's my absolute treasured possession. It means the world to me. I could cry looking at it. That's so a fantastic story. It just feels like they gave me a piece of my childhood back. Shappy Corsandi with those happy memories, bringing us to the end of this special Penguin podcast. The first of two, looking at just some of the highlights of the last year. If you've missed any of the episodes we've featured, they're all available to download via iTunes. Or you can seek them out on Acast or Soundcloud too. In the next episode, we'll be hearing from guests including Elvis Costello, Irvin Welsh and Kate Atkinson. And we'll learn about some of the very different writing routines of our authors. There's a wide range of tips and tricks. And before he even picks up a pen, we'll hear how comedian and writer John Finnemore procrastinates with a ball of tin foil. Follow us on Twitter at Penguin UK Books. You can subscribe for all the latest episodes and do leave us a rating or review. We'd love to hear what you think. From Penguin Random House Audio. Following the award-winning podcast serial, Rabia Chowdhury has written and narrated the tale that inspired it, Adnan's story. It re-examines the investigation that led to Adnan Saeed's arrest, shares his life in prison, covers new evidence that has since come to light and reviews the recent court successes, including a ruling by a Maryland judge to reopen Saeed's case. Adnan Saeed was 17 when he was arrested for the murder of his former girlfriend, Heyman Lee, in 1999 in the suburbs of Baltimore, Maryland. He was convicted and sentenced to life plus 30 years. My younger brother Saad's best friend, Adnan is like a brother to me. And for 17 years now, my family and I have stood by him as he has maintained his innocence. I was in law school when Adnan was arrested and still a student when he was convicted. I was never Adnan's lawyer. But my life has remained tethered to Adnan through an abiding belief that he is innocent. Adnan's Story by Rabia Chowdhury is available now on iTunes and Audible.